Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. And so we slept there in dormitories and we had jobs and we did schooling and Scientology studies. And then we would see our parents just for a few hours on the weekend. Usually it was like Friday night and then we would see them Saturday morning. Jenna Miscavige-Hill was just two years old when she started living in those dormitories at a ranch for Scientology children in the outskirts of L.A. Jenna was prohibited from seeing her parents during the week and spent her days doing manual labor between evening studies and regular confessions. I sort of viewed people from the outside world as like a little bit scary like that you could tell them the wrong thing and it would become this big problem. And it was a big problem, but not in the way that Jenna was taught to believe. Not until she started asking questions and receiving punishments instead of answers. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. Lately, it seems like Scientology is everywhere. Docu-series, tell-all books, the cover of People magazine, and ex-Scientology members opening the curtains and telling the often jaw-dropping stories of their experience. The public appetite and curiosity for these stories seems endless. People want to know, what is Scientology selling? Who is buying it? What happened to them? While these stories may feel like something that couldn't or wouldn't happen to you, I think there are pieces we can all relate to. That feeling of being stuck, whether it's in a relationship, a job, or any circumstance where you haven't yet figured out how to get from point A to point B, but knowing you cannot stay where you are any longer. How do you know it's time? How do you make that decision? And how do you leave and make room for a new life chapter? Jenna Miscavige-Hill is the niece of the most powerful man in the church, David Miscavige. Her parents were part of the core leadership within Scientology. It was all she knew. The work, the physical labor, the diets, the studies, the secrecy, and the confessions. But at the age of 21, Jenna decided she had had enough. How exactly does a brain get washed and what is the process for getting unwashed? She lost out on the experiences that we take for granted. 
birthdays and bar mitzvahs, family vacations, and Christmas mornings. It is never too late to start a new life. Your circumstances do not define you. Be brave because you owe it to yourself to try and fear should never be the reason that you stay. Today's episode of All the Wiser is brought to you by my new online digital course, All the Happier. All the Happier is a live six-week course rooted in positive psychology. So what is positive psychology? Positive psychology is the scientific understanding of what a life looks like when someone is flourishing. The common behaviors and characteristics of human beings who are thriving. The goal is not fleeting happiness or toxic positivity. It is discovering our strengths and building a life of both meaning and purpose. If you are inspired by the stories and lessons on this podcast and have ever thought about bringing them into your own life, I hope you will consider joining us on this fun and meaningful journey. The course goes live every Wednesday for six weeks, starting October 13th. You will be joining me and my dear friend and positive psychology practitioner, Christy Peterson. It's going to be fun. It's going to be meaningful. And we will all walk away with a little less stress, a lot more joy, and a deeper connection to the things that matter most. I am so excited about everything having to do with All the Happier, but one of the main things is the opportunity to meet you. Class enrollment opened yesterday, September 21st, and you can click in the show notes to learn about all the details of the class, sign up for our newsletter, or better yet, purchase the course. Now here's my interview with Jenna Miscavige-Hill. Jenna, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much for having me. So I always like to begin our interviews asking people to talk about the backdrop of their childhood. So if you can go back to the beginning and tell our listeners a little bit about the first two years, what your family looked like. Um, yeah, so I was born in New Hampshire. And at the time, my parents had just built a new house and we were living there. My brother lived there also. And my parents were working for a local company that was mostly owned and run by other Scientologists. And, you know, I think my parents would just go to work during the day. I think I had a babysitter. And that was until I was about like just a little bit before I turned two. Yeah. So, I mean, the way in your book, it was really sort of a suburban life in New Hampshire. So what happens next for your family? I do remember when we moved to LA, at first my parents worked in LA. And so I would see them mostly every day. Like I would see them for a couple hours every day. But then as time continued, like within the first year or so, my mom was off in Curacao actually doing a project for Scientology. And so it wasn't too long before I didn't get to see them as often as I had. And then by the time I was four, both of my parents had moved up 
to Riverside where the international headquarters of Scientology was. And so at that point, I only saw them once a week. So I know by the time you were six, you end up going to a place called The Ranch. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what is The Ranch? Yeah, so The Ranch is a boarding school of sorts where um, the children of people who work for the church in its international headquarters where their children go and they, you know, we all live there in dormitories. There's about, it started off slowly. At first there wasn't as many kids, but in the end there wound up being about 80 or a little more. And so we slept there in dormitories and we had jobs and we did schooling and Scientology studies. And then we would see our parents just for a few hours on the weekend. Usually it was like Friday night, and then we would see them Saturday morning. And what is the day-to-day during your life on the ranch? So at the ranch, we all lived in dormitories. So I lived with like seven other girls in one room, which was connected by a small bathroom to another dormitory with seven girls. And our day-to-day was pretty much like we woke up at like 6.30 a.m. We would clean our rooms and then we would all be gathered together. It was called muster and we would get our uniforms inspected. We would get our dormitories inspected for cleanliness. You know, it was sort of run in a military-esque way where it was like we were all assigned certain units and they would report our presence or absence like it would be like one, oh, and we were called cadets. And so... One cadet was in charge and he would go to the various units and be like, unit one report. And they would be like, all present and accounted for. And then they'd say, left face. And then we would all turn to one side and someone would walk down the aisle and inspect our uniforms. So it was run in a very military style. But after that, then we had certain duties that we were supposed to carry out before breakfast Everyone had a sort of different job. My job happened to be that I was supposed to give vitamins to the other kids, like nutritional vitamins. And if they had like an illness or a malady, I was supposed to take their temperature. I was supposed to make sure they got food, that they're in isolation or like, I don't know if they had a rash, I was supposed to give them cream. And then after that, we had breakfast and it was just very structured. And then once we were done eating, we would all, we had like a big cleanup. We all had our assigned cleaning stations and then we would have another muster. And so at this point it was about like 9.30 and then we would get assigned our projects for the day. And they revolved around keeping the ranch clean and upgrading it and maintaining it. So it could be anything from planting trees to taking out weeds to painting a building to cleaning the pool, to all sorts of things, hauling rocks. We occasionally, like if you're supposed to complete your project that day, then you would have to go back and work through lunch. So after lunch, we would do schooling, except all kids, like there wasn't grades. It was kids of all ages in one classroom being taught like on a self-led checklist that we had. And then um, after that, it was dinner And then we would go back in the evening and do Scientology studies. And our day pretty much ended at 9.30 at night. And we would go to sleep after that. And, you know, there's so many things that I want to touch on and ask you about. But 
in reading about your responsibility at such a young age to medically be responsible for other children, I just thought the weight of that, if something would have happened, and my understanding is that within Scientology, that they don't believe in a lot of sort of Western and traditional medication. If kids had fevers, you couldn't you know, offer Motrin or Tylenol, that everything needed to be supplements and vitamins. Mm -hmm. But what a big responsibility for such a, a young person. And it speaks to you, I believe at the age of eight, signed a billion year contract. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why? And then this notion of perhaps this was part of the thinking that even though you were a child, you're perceived as an adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in Scientology, they believe that we are all like a spirit, which they call a thetan, but almost like your body is like a meat appendage that you're sort of stuck in, that you really are the thetan and you get a new body each lifetime. And so I guess nobody is really a child. If you're looking at it through that point of view, you're a thetan that's billions of years old. And so you're just a thetan in a small body or a young body. And so that sort of, you know, twist, you know, the general perspective that you're a child and that you shouldn't have certain responsibilities and so on. Yeah, which speaks to that is the lens, right? Of this sort of exhaustive labor at times and the responsibility of being responsible for the medical care of the children that you were with. And the billion year contract, mm -hmm. why are you asked to sign that? What is it? And what is the promise of Scientology? The why, if you will, your understanding of it at that time? Mm -hmm. So the billion year contract basically is just pledging yourself as a Thetan to come back each year and work for the C organization, which is the management group of Scientology or that inner core group. And because you're the spirit and not a body who lives for billions of years, you're basically just like saying that you'll return in your next lifetime. And that idea that you're not a body, you're a Thetan, I think that same concept is used to excuse things like, why aren't children with their family members? And it's like, if we're all Thetans, then one body isn't really the parent of another. You know, I was told this by my aunt. And so it's sort of the excuse why it's okay that we're not with our family all the time like regular children are. And as far as the promise of Scientology, I guess... There's so many levels of it that they teach. Like to the general person wanting to get into Scientology, they sort of teach that, oh, we can teach you better communication. We can teach you how to resolve conflict. We can teach you to be more capable in your job and things like that. But then the closer you get to the core of Scientology, it's more about they think that we're stuck in our bodies and that we originally in our native state, but basically they are trying to offer you spiritual freedom. Scientology, as is, is you and I talked about, is so complex, right? Reading your book and your incredible life story was also learning a whole new language. Um, right. and you and I talked talk about that <laughs> in advance of this interview. 
But I know, and you you spoke to it a little bit, there's public Scientology, right? You're sort of mm-hmm. removed. There's the Sea Org, which you've spoken to, the ranch, which is where the children of the Sea Org. That's right. So high level public Scientology versus where your parents went, sort of verge back into that journey of Sea Org. Can you sort of juxtapose the two? For sure, yeah. So in the Sea Org, um, that's the people who are working for the church. They live in church quarters. They eat there. You know, they're actually, they sign the billion-year contracts. They're paid $50 a week. So that's just their whole life is completely occupied with that. Whereas if you're a public Scientologist, you can have another job somewhere else. You live in your own house. You can own your own house, eat your own food, etc. You just pay Scientology to take their services and classes and basically receive counseling. So it's a very different life. And with your parents being in the Sea Org, Mm -hmm. and I know, again, the qualifiers of Sea Org, I read, you've never taken LSD, you've never attempted suicide, you have no anti-Scientology family members. Mm -hmm. My understanding is you cannot be pregnant and that there is documented sort of coerced and forced abortions. Right. So really your world becomes so small as your parents are in the Sea Org and you are at the ranch. What are you told about the outside world or are you curious, I guess, what's going on in in your head at this time? Basically, nobody I knew was not at the ranch, you know, or was not a Scientologist. So we would occasionally, like when we went to our parents' quarters on the weekend, we would like go out to eat somewhere. Like my dad would take us out to eat. And basically we called people who weren't Scientologists WOGs. And I think it stands for like well and orderly gentlemen or something. I don't really know what the origin of that is, but it's sort of like comparable to muggles. Like, and we would basically be told how to speak to them, like to tell them that we were students and we were not supposed to like bring up that we were working and so on. Like when other wogs would come to the ranch, which was very rare, but like in order to get something repaired or if it was like a health inspector, we would all like not be allowed to work and we would be rehearsed on what to tell them and so on. So I sort of viewed people from the outside world as like a little bit scary like that you could tell them the wrong thing and it would become this big problem. And yeah, I mean, I think there's so many points in the book and the story where fear is the tool, right? Mm-hmm. So much fear internally within the church and then fear of the unknown in the outside world. Yes, yeah. Another example of that is that we were taught that in public schools that they had psychiatrists there, which Scientology is very against psychiatry and, you know, would show us images at events of people getting like electric shock and like drugged and becoming like zombies, not zombies, but like just vegetables. And I guess I had the idea that that would go on if you were at a public school, that if you weren't obedient or something that you could get like electric shock and the psychiatrist would come and get you sort of thing. I know another very regular part and piece of your life is the process of being audited. 
yourself and auditing others. Mm -hmm. In the book, you really draw a parallel to the confession of sins, but can you explain what auditing is and the role it plays in your life at this young age? Yes, absolutely. So there's different types of auditing. There is one section that's called confessionals, which are the same as confessing your sins. And even from a young age, like when we're at the ranch, basically this aspect of it isn't called auditing because it isn't counseling per se, but it's like once a week we were required to go be attached to what is called an e-meter, which is sort of like an electric device, which you hold two cans and it's connected to a dial. And basically it's sort of like a lie detector and they observe your needle behavior, like the needle of the dial. And from that, based on your needle behavior, they decide if you need to write down confessions that week or not. So if you have a dirty needle, which is an agitated jerking motion of the needle, then it's considered that you have something that you're hiding. Where if your needle reaction is more clean and flowing, then you're good. So it sort of started there, the confessions. We would have to write down bad things we've done, anything from like, I didn't finish my cleaning station to I talked back to my superior or whatever else. And then that sort of escalated as I got older to you're in a room with a person who is asking you questions like, did you do this bad? Have you stolen anything? And then they ask you, is there an earlier similar time you did something like that? And then you continue that until your needle has a clean reading. And often the auditing sessions are recorded. Is that accurate? Yes, they often are almost always recorded. And the excuse for that is that it's to make sure that the auditor is doing a good job interpreting the needle movements and it's for training purposes usually. But your understanding in hindsight as an adult looking back is what? The why of those sessions being recorded starting, you know, at a very young age? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both. If an auditor misses something, in a session and misses a needle reaction, they would get in a lot of trouble. So on one hand, it's to control the auditor. And on the other hand, like everybody who's in Scientology knows that all their confessions are recorded on video, basically, and written down by the auditor as well. So it definitely gives that extra layer of they basically know everything about you and can tell anybody if you step out of line. And we've talked about fear, fear of the outside world. So I'm curious, what were the types of infractions and the associated punishments, penalties? What do you witness over the years? So some of the common infractions would be things like specifically for me in the Sea Org, there's a very hierarchical structure. So some groups were responsible for managing other groups and So one of the groups that I was in was responsible for managing another group of people, and it was an infraction to fraternize with the group below me. And I got in trouble for that a lot because, you know, just being friendly with other people who I knew and who were my age. So that would be something that I would have to confess to, and it would be something that if other people witnessed it, everyone else is on the lookout for you doing that, that they would report you for, and 
generally you would get separated from those people, told you were not allowed to speak to them in that way anymore, even if they were your friend or if you knew them growing up. And you would have to make amends and confess. And the Rehabilitation Project Force, Mm -hmm. I believe that's the name. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Rehabilitation Project Force is basically like the jail of the Sea Org. It's not actually jail, but basically once you're assigned to it, it's like the worst case scenario. And everyone who's assigned to that project is required to wear black. They're not allowed to speak to other members unless spoken to. They are required to do heavy confessionals throughout, I think it's five hours a day they're required to do that. And then the rest of the time is heavy physical manual labor. And they're supposed to run everywhere. They're not allowed to walk. So that's what happens if you get in really big trouble in the sewer. So it's almost as you're talking about it, I'm thinking like, this is way oversimplified, but the perfectionism, you know, that any misstep, any mistake, that the fear that I, I keep going back to mm-hmm. the fear. So yeah, well, you would be right. <laughs> <laughs> Your uncle is David Miscavige mm-hmm. and he is the leader of the church. He's incredibly powerful and I would say notorious. Mm-hmm. What are your early memories of your Uncle David? Uh, My early memories of him was that he was just like really friendly and nice to me and would joke around and had a big beaming smile. And then just as I got a little bit older, like people would be like, your uncle is really important. And I was, I rarely saw him anyway. So it wasn't like this was happening every day. Like I saw him maybe a couple times a year and then, you know, I started to, hear how people would talk about him. And then one time he was coming to the ranch and it was like this big thing. Like we had to clean every inch of the ranch and we were told how to speak to him. And then I was sort of like brought up as like, Jenna, you need to go up to your uncle and say, sir, would you like some lemonade? And that became how it was throughout the rest of my life. Anytime he was coming to town, it was like a big cleaning effort. We were all told to salute and say our names and our jobs. And speaking of family, you're, as you said, not with your mom and dad. You see them only on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And I know that distance grows over the years. The weekends become lost. So how often are you seeing your parents and when does that start to dissipate? So since I was four, I was seeing my dad on Saturday mornings and then he would also make an extra visit out to the ranch on Friday mornings that no one else's parents did. He would literally be there for a half an hour, but it was when he was supposed to be sleeping and he would pay that visit, but that was it. So it's like, you know, at max, like five hours a week. My mom would be off on projects that she would be assigned to that were not in California, or if they were, they were like in LA or somewhere far away. So I would rarely see her on the weekend. And it was more like, like sometimes she would be gone for two years at a time and I would see her once in six months. And I think that when I was little, I really missed them. I think just as a kid, you just naturally always want to be with your parents. And then sort of by the time I turned 12, it was just like a little bit like strangers, you know, or I just felt like my life was mostly consumed with 
the people I was with every day, the people who knew me better than everyone else, which were the other kids at the ranch. Do you remember longing for your parents or longing for that familial connection? Or, you know, I I guess it goes back to what you said. It's all you ever knew, right? Yeah, but I think that there's a part of that that is so natural to someone, especially now being a mom. Like, so when I was younger, I, I longed for my parents every day. I would have like dreams at night that I was on a day off with my parents and that we went to the beach and I would wake up and it was like, oh, this again. And it would be, I would like have to hold it together because it was really upsetting. When I was little, it was all I wanted. Then by the time I became 12, it was like, well, that's not going to happen. So, you know, no point. Like, I guess I learned from a young age, like there's no point in crying about anything because it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. And it all it does is give you swollen eyes, like just made no difference. So it's just one of those things that you learn to conserve your energy on and deal with in the best way you can, you know, to protect yourself. That is so sad. When do you first remember starting to question your life, everything you knew to be true? I know you tried to run away at some point from the ranch with a friend. So when do you remember starting to question everything that you had been told? I think that I started questioning things more probably when I was about 14. I was in Florida, which is like the training center for Scientology and none of my parents were there. I'd been there by myself since I was 12. Not by myself, I was with other people, but just no parents and no real family. And there was a boy I met who was a cadet, which is like he was still at the sort of kids facility there, like the the ranch equivalent in Florida. And he was asking me if I miss my parents. And I was like, well, no, because I'm a Satan. And he was like, yeah, but if I didn't have my mom here, then that would be terrible. And I was like, "Mm." I guess I never really had allowed myself to have those feelings. Like at night, I'd like think about it. And then it sort of made me be like, hmm. He was like, yeah, but do you really believe you're a Satan? And I was like, dude, he's crazy. Like, of course, how can he even say that? Because I just had never even been taught or thought that questioning it was an option. And so I never did. And I guess I thought at that time, like, do I really think I'm a Thetan? And also like, do I really want to be here? That was probably the first time that I questioned anything. Eventually you would meet your now husband, Dallas. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about meeting Dallas? Yeah. He was just somebody who I saw in the hallways. You know, I thought he was cute and We would flirt a little bit. And then when we started dating a little bit, which basically means talking in the hall when you're supposed to be going to sleep, you know, he would tell me about stories of him growing up. He did not grow up in the Sea Org like I had. His parents were public Scientologists. So, you know, he went to regular public school for most of his life. And he would just tell me about like his family outside and what it was like for him growing up and the trips he would take and just silly stuff that happened about different characters in his life. And it just like, I don't know, it was so interesting to me. Like, it was like almost like a fantasy world a little bit. Like, I think that's one of the main reasons that I liked him, just because he was somebody who had this other experience that was like 
instead of the people in it sounding so scary, even though honestly I was still scared of them, it sounded like regular fun people and cool things that I would want to do, but I never could. Yeah, almost like this portal, like reading a book and being transported into another world that he did that with his childhood stories. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's like also the beginning of some questioning, but at the time I didn't know that. It was just like, wow, these stories are really interesting to me and they're really fun and they make me really happy and I want to hear more, you know? And I think then gradually you get into, oh, that would be fun to have that myself. And eventually you do decide to leave and you learn your parents have left Scientology. Mm -hmm. So walk me through this chapter, the road of your decision to leave and learning that your parents have left the church. So when I was in Florida and I was 16, I was like sort of plucked out of my day and I started being like security check. That's another word for a confessional. So they just basically started asking me questions of things I had done wrong and so on and wanting me to confess. And this gradually escalated to me being kept in a room all day studying like Scientology materials and then to me having to clean the bathroom all day. And I thought it was because I did something wrong, but basically at the end of this going on for at least a month and being isolated from all my friends, not being able to talk to them, I was told that I was going to LA. And so I went to LA on a flight. I didn't get to say goodbye to anybody who I knew. And when I got there, I was told that my parents had left the Sea Org, that they were living in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, and that I was now going with them. And I was just in shock. Like, first of all, I had no idea why any of that had been happening. Like I thought it was because I did something wrong because the truth is that you've always done something wrong when you're there. There's always some infraction you've made, someone reported on you for something. But I had no idea that I was never going to see any of my friends ever again and be told to go live in Mexico with basically two strangers who I felt now felt like they were entitled to me, even though I was 16 and hadn't seen either of them for any length of time since I was 12. And even before that, it was like a maximum of a few hours once a week. And so I didn't want to go. So from there, basically, my parents talked to me. They said that the church was trying to manipulate me. And then the church said, okay, well, you can stay, but you have to stay in LA. So I didn't wind up leaving myself until years after that. Like that that was when I was 16 and I didn't leave until I was 21. And why do you decide to leave? What are the specifics around your leaving Scientology and leaving with Dallas? I think that um, me leaving was a culmination of so many things. Like obviously years of going through things, I was still allowed to communicate with my parents as long as I received a confessional before I spoke to them and after. And it wasn't like I could speak to them anytime. It was like, you can go visit them for a Christmas holiday and come back. My dad would try to talk to me about things, but he did so in a way that he knew what it was like to be brainwashed. He never was like, 
they're bad and horrible. He was like, would just point out tiny things and would just say that, you know, I'm always here for you and things like that. And so I think little things that they said, you know, slowly began to like just sit in the back of my mind. And then also there was what I was experiencing firsthand. There was control for the sake of control. And there was just things that were happening that were outright terrible that as somebody who felt I was in Scientology to help people, those two things didn't go together. And I couldn't make excuses that they were to help anyone at all anymore because the people who I cared about who were in the Sea Org with me were getting abused. And I didn't even know all these other wogs who I was supposed to be saving, you know? What type of abuse are you witnessing? There were projects that were supposed to get done and people would have to stay up all night for like a week in a row. And previously our time that we were supposed to go to bed in the evening or allowed to go home was like 11 o'clock. And then it became like one o'clock and there was no exercise time allowed. And then if you went to bed at 12 o'clock, you would still, or if you went home at 12 o'clock, you would still get in trouble. You were expected to stay up all night whether or not you were working on a project. And that in particular was like, no, I'll stay for a project, but I'm not going to do this forever and stay up all night continually to prove my dedication and just kill myself and the rest of the group and act like it's okay. It was just completely illogical to me. And people would come in and if you were listening to music, they'd be like, no, you're not allowed to listen to music. No, you're not allowed to have snacks in your drawers and so on. It just became out of control, unreasonable. And I think it was also combined with the fact that I was older. Like, I think that there's something that your body has when you're 18 that you don't have when you're younger, that you're not just relying on the adults around you to make observations and tell you how to act and behave. You start to make your own decisions and you've learned a few things. And I think that I was becoming less tolerant of it and drawing my own conclusions. And I think it was just a combination of so many factors that led to almost the instincts in my body knowing before I did that I was no longer going to participate in that. Do you remember the moment when the body and the brain align and you say, I'm doing this, like I'm leaving, this is it? Yes. So there was a project that my husband and I were sent to in Australia for a year to do for the Sea Org. And when we came back, the difference was so stark compared to where we had been in Australia to where we were. Like people were being treated terribly. They're expected to stay up all night. There was no time off allowed, which was mostly the case, you know, when we were there. You're only ever allowed one day off every other week. Everybody was receiving like half pay or no pay. Pay was already only $50 a week. So, And just at every staff meeting, people would just get yelled at, brought in front of the group, told that they're a piece of crap. Everyone was constantly being put down. And it was even in contrary to Scientology's own policies. I think that made a big difference to me. And I think I tried to resolve things by going to the core of Scientology, which is like the counseling. So I was like, fine, I'll become a counselor. And When I tried to do that, there was just other rules that were wrong, and I just felt like the whole organization was corrupt. The leaders were enforcing things on people that were wrong, and it didn't matter who I went to. 
nobody really was interested in changing it or making it better. And so at that point, I was like, all right, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And when you and Dallas decide to leave, there are a lot of threats. Mm -hmm. And as you said, the church perceives you as a threat, right? Your parents are now not aligned. Mm -hmm. When they learn that you're leaving, what are some of the things that begin to happen to both you and Dallas? So the rule is that if you leave the Sea Org, you have to receive a confessional before you go. And once you leave, you have to pay back the money for all the classes you ever took and all the counseling you ever received. And only then can you be in good standing with the church. And so that might seem like a little thing, but the truth is that anyone who you know in your life is a Scientologist, anyone who you've ever known is a Scientologist. So that affects things like getting a job when you leave. Most people who leave, they get a job at a Scientology company and so on. So I was required to get a confessional Basically, people are known to be getting these confessionals for six months to a year before they leave. And, you know, people are trying to convince them to stay the entire time. They also asked me to sign something saying that I would never speak about Scientology or the Sea Org or anything that's happened to me, like a non-disclosure agreement. And that seemed extremely shady to me and, and a way of controlling me. And so I just shredded it up and said, no, I'm not doing that. And that was a big thing that they wanted me to do before I left and that they were not happy at all that I didn't do it. Dallas had said he would leave with me if I went through the procedure, but me getting through the procedure was increasingly difficult. And so finally, I just decided I was going to leave. And the church had been talking to him behind my back and telling him things like he would never speak to his family again if he left, telling him bad things about my parents and about me and, you know, saying what he was going to get if he stayed. And basically, then we wound up leaving together. Dallas decided that they were completely hypocritical and being sneaky. And we wound up leaving that night. But instead of going to my parents who were in Virginia, we went to his parents in San Diego. And so they wouldn't let us go back and get our stuff. We had to like sleep at a nearby motel, which was really difficult because we didn't have any money. We only got paid $50 a week. And then the next morning they brought us a U-Haul with all of our stuff packed up perfectly and all inventoried down to like the last Q-tip. And then they basically told Dallas that they're going to make sure that they do everything in their power so that his family never speaks to him again. And then we drove off. You are reentering a world you have never known, which I just can't fathom because everything is new and foreign. Mm -hmm. What are some of the specifics of the reentry into the world outside of Scientology? To be honest, it's like, I feel like people think that you leave and you know, everything's great, but there are really weird things that just like walking in a grocery store, like I just felt weird. Like it was like, oh, I'm pretending to be a wog. Like it was like, are people looking at me? Am I pushing this cart right? Like I never did that as a kid or simple things like cooking. We always ate in a mess hall. So now all of a sudden you have to like prepare three meals a day. And I started working at my husband's parents' jewelry store, which was filled with wogs, so to speak, who knew about Scientology because 
Dallas's father was a Scientologist. But rather than finding them scary, it was like they were weirdly understanding and nice. Like to the point where if that happened in the church, you'd be like suspicious that they were trying to get information out of you to report you. But I found wogs to be like, wait, what happened to you? And that's crazy. And that's terrible. And really nice and supportive. Like it actually gave me, I don't know, it was the best possible first impression of the WOG world. It was like, wow, people actually care and are interested and are empathetic. There's been extensive reporting on the church's propensity to harass members who leave, Mm -hmm. hiring PIs, and there's been a lot of investigative work on that. Mm-hmm. Were you afraid or did you experience any of that? You're in the outside world trying to build a life. Mm-hmm. I know for a lot of people within Sea Org, no high school or college degree. Mm-hmm. Does the fear live on? Not anymore, but as far as what happened when we left, they were definitely doing that. To start out with, I mean, the only people I knew were Dallas's parents and they would contact them frequently, have meetings with them frequently to talk about us and to try to get us to come back and go through their procedures. And there was a lot of pressure put on us to do that. We even did go back one time to hear what they had to say, but people came down to speak to us, executives. And then when I started speaking out about Scientology, we were followed by PIs. We were begged with to not continue. You had really never been given the opportunity to form your own identity, your belief systems, your values. You know, I think part of growing up in the coming of age is trying on all these different hats, right? What do I love? What do I believe? And so I'm curious as an adult who had a childhood that did not allow for that, Mm -hmm. I guess the process of forming your identity outside the church Well, once my son was three, when I had my daughter, I stopped working. And honestly, that time was really eye-opening. Like there's so many things that I had been fleetingly interested in as a kid, but there was no time. Like there wasn't play time. There wasn't drawing time. There wasn't art time. And so there's just so many things that I realized, oh, I'd been interested in this since I was a kid, but I never had time to do it. So it's a slow process that's evolving. But I mean, I definitely have my own niche things that I'm interested in now that I know, you know, I'm, I know I'm an artistic person. I like doing pottery, flower arranging, drawing, all sorts of things like that. How do you reconcile the choices that your parents made on your behalf and, you know, moving into adulthood and how do you reconcile that? And I'm curious about your relationship today. Yeah, I think that as I became a mom and even as my kids get older, it does get harder and harder to reconcile with because as a child, I only went through what I went through. I haven't had anyone else's childhood experience to compare it to, but now I kind of do. Now I'm experiencing my children's childhood and I know that they lose teeth. The tooth fairy has to come, you know, they have birthdays, they need to have a party. So no one else around me was having a party at that time. But now I'm like, imagine having a kid and not ever having a party for them or even being there on their birthday. My dad sometimes was, and sometimes my mom was too, but it like, it was just business as usual, you know, or even having holidays and family vacation. There's just so many 
needs that they have that I never really thought of until they had them. I never really thought of them to myself. And honestly, it's just hard. I can't understand spending that much time away from your kid. Like I, I, I would never be okay with it. Well, it's like you're almost witnessing the childhood you never had, the childhood that you could have had, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is healing in that way. It's really nice for me to be able to give that safety and love to somebody who I love so much. It helps me in so many ways. And of course it helps them, but it is weird. I Like sometimes I'm like, did they not love me? But I know I was a good kid. Like I literally did everything everyone told me to in, in vast juxtaposition to what my kids are doing. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned healing, that parenting has been a piece of healing or a process of healing for you. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of trauma, I would say, and mm-hmm. you know what you experienced mm-hmm. from two to 21. What has been healing for you? What has helped you find strength and comfort in healing? I think definitely being a parent has been the biggest healing thing for me. It's just like almost getting like a do-over a little bit and just the satisfaction of not letting those things change me into a bad parent because that could easily happen. And so it does give me a lot of self-esteem and pride that I'm able to be a good mom. Like being a good mom is hard, but I don't have to try to love my kids I just love them so much and I'm really proud that they're good, kind people. But also, you know, other things that are healing are, like you mentioned before, like finding myself. What kind of person am I? What would I have done, you know, if I had the chance? And it's been really healing to find out that you actually still can learn things. Like it's not too late to learn the piano or to learn pottery and your life isn't over just because, you know, you missed it on your childhood. I'm still good at learning things and I still love learning it. And I think the contrast of not having been able to do it makes it so much better for me. Like it gives me more gratitude. I love that. (laughs) It's important for all of us. So obviously your story is dramatic Mm -hmm. in every way, shape and form and pretty unique. I mean, I think you know, as you said, we're brainwashed. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's probably something that is more relatable in your story. And that I think whether it is a relationship, a group, a culture, whether it's professionally, where people sort of realize they're living a life that is not of their choosing, or perhaps where Mm -hmm. they don't have, you know, agency or really independent thinking What is your advice to somebody who kind of has that whisper in the back of their head? Like, wait, is this me or Mm -hmm. am I a part of something that isn't aligned with who I know myself to be? Right. Yes. And I think that's such a good way of putting it. There's been so many times when my intuition, and I don't want this to sound woo or anything like that, but it's like my body knew something before I even had the words to describe it or before I could logically say what it was that was the problem. And it's just to follow that. Like your body knows things, sees things that you don't always see and analyze. And so 
if you're in a good relationship or a good group, then it shouldn't be a problem for you to take a step back, to take a moment and not engage for a little bit until you can figure out what it is. You should always be able to ask questions and you should never get penalized for that. And just believe your gut because that's, you know, that's your real self. Yeah, because listening to your intuition and finding the courage to do the hard thing changed the trajectory of your life. And today, you know, as you said, you're a mom with two kids and a husband having this conversation and authoring a book to get the distance and to get quiet so you can really tap in. Absolutely. And it's a lesson that I weirdly have to learn over and over again in so many aspects of my life. Like you said, friendships, relationships, you know, even things on being a mom. Like some people are like, cry it out or else you're horrible. And they're like, hold your baby all the time. And so it's just like about finding what sits well with you, what you can live with for the rest of your life, knowing that you have done and only you can tell yourself that. What is your hope in sharing your story? What message do you want people to take away? Hmm. I guess a few things. I think that essentially it's that, you know, listening to your own intuition is very important. But I think that an even bigger one is that even if you're in a really bad situation and everything depends on it, like it feels like you'll lose everything, that might not be the case. It might just be a new beginning to something better. So being brave is so important, especially when you know something is right. It takes bravery to get out of a bad situation. And bravery is knowing things could be bad and will be hard, but having enough faith in yourself to know that you're worth it and that you will come through it and you will make the best of that. Well, Jenna, I can't thank you enough and you are brave and courageous and wise and I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Kimmy. It was my pleasure. So we end All the Wiser with something a little light called Lightning Round. So if you're game, I have a a few fun questions for you. Okay. All right. (laughs) Favorite movie? Oh, Dan in Real Life with Steve Carell. I love that movie. (laughs) Biggest pet peeve? I know this is weird, but I really don't like AstroTurf. I just like real grass. I feel the same way. (laughs) I've had this debate with my husband. Favorite day of the week? Oh, gosh. Um, Saturday? The top thing on your bucket list. Who I want to travel so many places. So just travel the world. Your hope for your kids. Just that they're happy. That's all I want. I don't care if they're like genius professors, world leaders or anything. I just want them to be happy and feel loved. Again, Jenna, thank you so much. And it was a privilege to have this conversation. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Thank you so much. I feel the same. Thank you. Today's charity partner, picked by Jenna, is the Edible Schoolyard Project. Their mission is to transform public education one organic garden at a time. Through gardens, kitchens, and cafeterias, they teach both academic subjects, life skills, and values. 
Their important work provides hands-on experiences that connect students to nature, food, and each other while addressing climate change, public health, and social inequalities. It is a dynamic and joyful learning experience for every kid who has the opportunity. And we are incredibly grateful to Jenna for introducing us to their work. You can learn more about the Edible Schoolyard Project by checking them out at edibleschoolyard.org. Before we wrap, I want to thank everyone who has left a rating and or review. We read every single one. As a reminder, we have a goal this season. The goal is to reach 1,000 ratings on Apple Podcast. We are almost halfway there, and with your help, we can reach this goal and allow even more people to discover all the wiser in the stories we share. Thanks again, and you can look in our show notes for links to Jenna's book, Beyond Belief, The Edible Schoolyard Project, and my new online digital course, All the Happier. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.